This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello, you are listening to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. I am not James Roy. I am Ali Burnham, the creative producer at Westwards, but I am with James Roy. Uh, We are swapping roles uh, because I'm going to ask him about some of his own work and where he's been for the past Oh, exciting. (laughs) So when you initially pitched to me um, over Japanese, uh, you had a very great way of describing the project you were working on. Did you want to give us... You did. You kind of you you lured me in with an anecdote and then told me this excellent true story oh, on which you're basing us. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, this is where the, this project originated was um, a true story that quite a few people know, um, and people are always interested to hear it because it is a it's bizarre. It's the only known example of whales working in partnership with humans for a common purpose, and it was down in the uh, in Eden, which is down on the south coast of New South Wales, Twofold Bay. Uh, and the indigenous people for many generations down there were, were doing this. And then a man called George Davidson started doing it with his family and with a whole bunch of indigenous um, workers who worked with him. And we're not quite sure how it first originated. It's, it's very mysterious. But basically what would happen is the, the lo- a local pod of orcas or killer whales would herd humpbacks or right whales into the bay and harass them and exhaust them while two of them two of the killers would go and slap their flukes on the water and the men would get in their whale boats go out there kill the whales moor the body for a day or so and leave it for the killer whales to have to eat the lips and the tongue that was all they wanted of these whales and then they would go and they would bring the body in and and process it and this went on for a long time until uh, in around 1930, just before 1930, the uh, something occurred where the killer whales didn't get what they what they were, felt they were entitled to, and um, they kind of left. And I wrote a libretto about this a few years ago, and basically, in my version of this, the uh, they left it with a broken heart. It probably wasn't that, <laughs> but old Tom, who was the alpha male of the group, he he broke his tooth off at some point in a, in a piece of rope that he was. Tr- grabbing onto to try and stop a boat from dragging this whale in because he's like, hang on, we had a deal. And they, it was literally called the law of the tongue. And, and it was like, we've got a deal here. And they broke the tooth off in the rope and then he ended up uh, starving to death, they think, because you can see if you go to Eden Killer Whale Museum, you uh, find a um, the skeleton of old Thomas down there, this massive um, abscess into his top drawer where his, where his tooth was broken off. And they think he died of... of hunger because of the starvation but this was kind of the story that I was keen to tell it had been told a couple of times by other people including Renee Davidson who who is one of the um one of the Davidson clan uh and then I was about to get going on writing the story I'd written a libretto I was get with, with music by Todd McNeil and then I was getting ready to actually do the writing and um Shirley Barrett's book Russo came out just as I was about to... i just finished my big book about the Rwandan genocide. I'd taken a deep breath. I was just ready to crack onto this young adult book about this and uh, Shirley Barrett's book came out. So I kind of had to... 
I was a little bit gutted and I had to take mm. a bit of a step back. And then I kind of changed that a little bit now. So now it's no longer about the, the killer whales so much as the lack of the killer whales mm. after they've left. And it's said a bit later and it's a um, war correspondent who's gone down there to grieve and there's, there's a little bit of other stuff to go on. But it's really more a, a story of betrayal mm. and growing up and turning on one's own. It's got a, a German-Australian... Uh, war correspondent is the main character who worked in the First World War with German prisoners of war and so forth. The whales turn on each other, the, the men turn on other men. There's a whole bunch of you know, sort of what they call nursing trade horizontal violence, which is just basically just mm. kind of picking on your own kind. Um, so that's kind of <laughs> where I'm at. That's uh, a very long answer to the short no, question. Isn't I, it? I love that. Um, no, I, I love hearing you talk about as a writer having an idea in mind especially an idea that is based um, on historical events and then so for me personally I'm working on historical fiction I feel like I'm constantly living in fear of you know, I'm going to hear in a week's time someone's come out with a book based it's, on the it's same... It's a horrible feeling, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, and, and I'm, I've asked myself that question, what would I do? How would I pivot if I found out someone's gone and done something very similar? Mm. Uh, so congratulations to you to, you know, not leaving the project, but finding, you know, a new way in to access, obviously, the same thing you wanted to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I mean, the, part of it, too, is that I mean, unlike writing about, let's say you want to write a, a story about some convict back in the day, there may be some family members who are mm. distantly related, but not, not enough that are really going to be that kind of broken up if you aren't entirely... I mean, you try to be faithful to the story, but at the same time, you can create a, a, a character who's similar but a bit different. And um, Whereas, I mean, I, I've played in bands with people who are actual cousins of the like from the Davidson clan yeah um so and it wasn't that long ago it was 1930 Mm -hmm. and so there are huge numbers especially still down in Eden but in Sydney as well huge numbers of um Davidsons and Logans and the the Cox and a few others um and I I kind of felt a bit weird about trying to do their story justice Mm -hmm. because you kind of need to have some villains in there as mm. well and I didn't want to make any of their family members villains it just didn't feel right I, I, I kind of just thought I wondered what it would be like if somebody decided that the skeletons in my family's closet needed to be <laughs> to be given some air um, so I kind of wasn't I was, while I was disappointed I kind of placated my disappointment in that way mm. um, and so now Eden has really become the setting and as it always was but with different people and I've tried to be faithful to some of the things like the years that particular hotels were in use and, and the way different parts of the land were used. The great thing about Eden as a, as a place to set a story like this is it's halfway between Brisbane and Melbourne, so you've got this constant, mm. like literally halfway, so you've got this constant kind of through traffic. You've also got the, the sea, the big empty sea. You've got industry there with fishing, whaling, uh, timber, dairy. There's so much going on in that area and it was it's a, an amazing place. But really for me, the... The big turning point came when I did my masters, and my thesis was, or my dissertation was, around the human-animal bond and how the hu- in a human-animal bond, it's almost always uneven in terms of agency. Mm-hmm. 
it be a horse and its rider or a dog and its master or, or whatever. And even though killer whales are far better suited for swimming around the ocean than humans are, <laughs> there's still this massive discrepancy in agency. Mm-hmm. And so my, my argument, which I don't know how well I made the case in my dissertation, but basically the, the thing I was looking at was the way that when you use a human-animal bond as the centrepiece for a, for a story, it's not until that is fractured in some way and mm-hmm. someone, usually the animal, is betrayed in that relationship that the real, the, the real drama and pathos happens. So something like um, you know, in the book Disgrace by Kurtzer or, or the old... Um, I was going to say the old man in the sea, I don't think that's the example... Um, Oh, old yeller, you know, mm, the, yeah. the dog who oh, doesn't yeah. understand. Yeah, right. You, you're a dog lover. You know how, <laughs> how painful the end of that story is. This dog that's going, hang on. Not only did I save the family, but now you're going to shoot me in the face. Like, are you serious? And it's heartbreaking because the dog doesn't understand why. And um, another example that I touched on in my dissertation was a story that's popped up in a whole bunch of different places independently. They think. It's the story of the Brahmin and the mongoose, which is the Indian nobleman who has a pet mongoose. He goes to the market, comes back, he's left his child in the care of the mongoose. I don't know what kind of idiot does that, but that's what he does. He goes, he comes back, he can't find his child, the mongoose has blood all over, all over its face. He gets really angry, he says, you've killed my son, kills the mongoose, then discovers a cobra that the mongoose has mm. killed and the child is fine. And this was repeated in France with the wolf and in Wales and... England and it's been all over the world and some of them independent and it was also replicated in it was used a bit a sanitised version of it was used in um, Lady in the Tramp right yes yep. but again it's just about this, the lack of agency and so for me when I got to this point in the, in the story I thought okay so maybe it's not really about the killer whales maybe it's about the fact that the killer whales have gone because the the industry had reached a point where they were no longer needed because we weren't using whale oil in the same way, so they just went. Mm-hmm. And um, so my, I was down there last week researching. My brother said to me, he said, you sure you want to make it after the whales are gone? I said, absolutely. He said, that's when all the fun was. That's when all the drama was. The people on, gather on the headlands watching mm-hmm. what happening, what's happening in Twofold Bay. And I said, yeah, I know. That's what everyone wants you to write about. But for me, it's more about the emptiness after that's all gone and, and how you... Because after the First World War, you know, Australia, it was a moment when... That's the other parallel. Mm. It's a moment when Australia kind of had to grow up and it realised that this dependency it had on king and country was actually a bit of a hollow hollow promise that mm. didn't really mean much. Anyway, so that's, that's again, a long <laughs> answer to your question. No, that that's... I, I really enjoy that. That's a really strong parallel. And I it's it's not like it's not going to have the whales in it. Like, I, even just hearing you talk about it, I you can tell that's just going to be the shadow in which the story's going to mm. take place. It, it's still going to be there and inside... Yeah, no, it's and it's happen. still there now when you go yeah. back. I mean, almost 100 years later, you go back there, and my brother and I, when we're down there, you can actually go, if you're ever in Eden, you can go out to... Um, Loch Gara, which is the old um, homestead that Davidson built on the foreshore of Kyre Inlet, where the still where the tri works were, and you can go. And when my composer friend and I went down there, we actually stayed in the house. We they allowed us to stay there, but you can walk along that area, that tiny little area that was a tri works for processing whales, and it's a it's a tiny little space, but you can feel it. You can feel the kind of just imagine that because you've seen photos as well of mm. whales in that place and suddenly you kind of make that connection and and no the the 
and you go down to the cemetery and the, the shadow of Davidson and Logan and these guys mm. is still very strong. And Boyd, who was an, a much earlier guy who was... Man, he's got a story. Holy gooly. He, he, this guy was like a modern-day... He's like Bob Jelly from Sea Change, only he was malevolent <laughs> and nasty and... Oh, wow. And he ended up getting, getting eaten by the Polynesians because he was, he was blackbirding. So it seems fair. It does, it does. So how much creative freedom are you permitting yourself with the the true facts? Um, So for an example, with my own writing, I I try to be as true to what I can dig up as possible, Mm -hmm. except maybe only in two events. If I can't find the information, then I give myself permission to fill in the void creatively. Or in the very rare occasion where I'm like, look, structurally, if this happened before that, that's actually a bit more juicier and tighter. So and a lot of that stuff can be dealt with with a very simple dis- mm-hmm. disclaimer yeah. at the beginning, right? <laughs> so how, how much uh, leeway are you giving yourself? Because you said you've researched hotels and you've tried to find what hotels were there at the time. Yeah, I mean, look, I, the way I, I tend to write is I'll, I'll just write scenes that come to me until I know where the story is going and starts to granulate a bit for me. Um, and in one of those early scenes that I wrote, I had um, Newman, who was the character, main character. He was born Heinrich Neumann in Germany, <laughs> and now he's Henry Newman, um, who was, was based on my great-grandfather, Gustav Bachhaus, who became Gus Bachhaus. But uh, I had him in an early scene that I wrote wandering through the graveyard of the church, of the Anglican church. I needed it to be an Anglican church because I needed the vicar to have a wife. Mm-hmm. For some another kind of moment I thought I was going to have to explore at some point. But then when I went down there, there's all these, ch- there's three churches, I think, in, or four churches. There's one that's what the Mary MacKillop Memorial. It was an old church that blew over and they put it up again. Next to the, uh, the, um, Lady of the, Our Lady of the Sea, I think it is, the Catholic Church. Right next door to that is the, Saint, I think it's St John's Anglican Church. Uh-huh. And then up on the top of the hill is the Presbyterian Church. Now, as far as I could tell, none of those churches have a graveyard behind mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to... I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. Whether I... That, invent that's the a graveyard. Challenge. Yeah, invent a graveyard or... Have him have the because I kind of needed this is the way I work is I, I go this is what I need my character to be yes. doing at this point now let's f- make a way w- find a way for that to happen and in the book that I work, wrote with Noel Ziobanwe about the Rwandan genocide I literally had to force him to let me give the family a water tank right because I yes. needed the water tank to be a place where the kids could hide for all these reasons so do I ne- oh, I've got to find a way so things like that I could just kind of do what you, you hinted at earlier and just go, you know what, there's a graveyard in the church, who's going to check? Yeah, it's in service of the story too. In service of the story. But yeah. then at the same time, look, people are very possessive of their stories <laughs> and people get very territorial about their stories. And if you start saying, oh, there was a guy over here, where there, there was a whatever in this corner, I go, no, that was never there, that was a such and such, that was a, that was a, <laughs> um, that was a slaughter, slaughterhouse, not a... Clinic or dentist or something. In the opposite of this, have you discovered a true fact that you've gone, oh, that's actually better. I'm now going to weave my story to incorporate this true fact. Yeah. Um, well, in the, in the, pro- the, the thing about this story is there's so many crazy, cr- 
crazy facts going on. I mean, the fact that Boyd, Boyd, who was this guy who got, you know, just absolute, you know, just megalomaniac. Mm. Um, he, he, was very, he was a very Donald Trump character. God. He thought he was bigger than he was. He expected everyone to get in line. He created a town called Boydtown, which was going to be the cap- king of the world, like it, 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 capital of the world. It was like, like almost like a, a sovereign, sovereign state kind of thing. Um, sovereign citizen. But, yeah, when I started digging around in his story, I, I found some interesting little bits and pieces I had to change. But, um, yeah, the, there was one the other day, actually, because I had originally said it in just after, just after the, the First World War. But then when I realised that the Wales had all finished doing their thing in 1929, 1930, mm-hmm. I thought, OK, so that's OK. He goes down there then. It's taken him that long for his deep trauma to resurface because mm-hmm. he's got a, new, got a wife and she dies in childbirth with, with her son, with their son. That much I know. So the, so the editor of the Herald goes, you need to go and have some time out. Why don't you go and, quote Marks, research a story and goes, oh, there's nothing in it. I, no, no, I need you to do that so that I can give you the leave. If nothing comes back from it, that's fine. So he goes down. And so that's why I moved it to 1930. It gives him time and, and, and the whales are gone. But my brother said to me, we went over to the um, Killer Whale Museum. And he said, have you seen the date on the front of the Killer Whale Museum? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, have a look. And I looked. And it's this beautiful sort of Art Deco facade. 1938. Yeah. So when we went digging, we found that almost immediately upon old Tom's skeleton being discovered, plans were being made to preserve his thing and they plans were being made to build a museum to preserve him. Fascinating. So that suddenly changed because we'd been having, my brother and I had been having this long conversation about, you know, those guys are on the other side, you know, they would have really stunk from working on the whales all the time and they were, they were employing Aboriginal people which may have been frowned on by some of the people. Were they really a popular member of the community or were they sort of just tolerated as being the weirdos from over at Kaya Inlet? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I don't know if that's a theory I want to float around my Davidson friends, but <laughs> possibly. And then we discovered 1938 they built this thing, which meant they were talking about this museum and everything changed in terms of... It wasn't just some sort of bizarre tourist thing where, like, oh, we had killer whales here, let's, let's attract tourists. No, this was a massive part. Old Tom himself, yeah. that killer whale with a funny-looking back fin, top fin... He himself was a, such a celebrity in the yeah, town. Yeah, was an institution. Institution yeah. that they were prepared to build, take, find a plot of land in, in one of the best parts of, the, of Eden, which is overlooking this, this magnificent spot. They go, we're going to house him there. And I, that, so that changed quite a bit. Yeah. That's very cool. In terms of your writing process, while you're down there in Eden, are you simply observing? Are you note-taking? Are you drafting? The first time down there, when I, well, I've been down there previously for the, for the libretto when we stayed in the house. And that was really interesting because it was very cold. And I remember my, um, and, you know, there's not much out there. It's a very old house and it's, it's um, you know, very ramshackle. And so we're, I've never been so cold. Todd and I are lying in our beds <laughs> with our beanies on and shivering. And at three in the morning, Todd suddenly goes, I've just had a horrible thought. And I said, what's that? And he said, you imagine that it's this time of night, a hundred years ago, and suddenly you hear the sound of flukes on the water, and you go, "I've got to get in a longboat now and row out and kill a whale." 
So there was that. And then I went back down with my... I got a grant to work on this book, so I went down with my wife a few... a couple of months ago. And that time, I, because I had time to kind of work the story out a little bit more, I was looking for specific things that I needed to... And suddenly I realised that the road from Eden around through Boytown and up to Kyra Inlet and the Tower is much, much longer than I remembered the first mm-hmm. time. And then I started looking to Boyd and I kind of had made this connection that he was there and I don't know why because he was like many, many years earlier. Um, so this time when I went down, I was actually doing a bit more writing and, and getting... Because I'd done some writing in the interim about the layout of the town and the steepness of the hill from there. Just little things like that to give me a bit of texture so I knew what kind of... Even simple stuff like what kind of condition this guy needs to be in to be able to walk that hill yeah. into a headwind to go and have a drink. Mm. Like little things like that. But now I've got... A, over the Christmas break, I've got a lengthy period of writing ahead of me. And I think that is then going to become a stage where I'm writing a story. I've got, en- got enough of the thing in my head now and I've been watching a lot of Deadwood, which is a problem because Deadwood is presented as Wild West, because it was. <laughs> and I'd started to see Eden 1920 uh, yep. as Wild West. It wasn't. It was, mm. it was pretty sophisticated, you know, the, the Roaring Twenties and all the rest. And so I think this time it's going to be lots of writing and I'll be making notes about check that, check that, check that. And then... And we, we do... I mean, Kate Forsyth talks about the fact that you can use... She uses... Um, Google Earth when she's writing, mm. you know, these sort of, these sort of um, fantasy stuff that she writes set in places like Cornwall. And she'll just get in Street View and drop into Cornwall and go for a wander, right? So we live in a really good time for that yes. kind of thing, right? But, um, no, I think I'm going to be making a lot of notes going, okay, is that plausible in that space? Um, but for, for now, I kind of feel like going down there and little things like, you think, oh, I'll go and sit... I'll put on a park and I'll go and sit down at the picnic table and do some writing. And I went down to do that and it was so unpleasant just with <laughs> the wind. I thought... I, I kind of knew how crippling strong wind can be just in getting things done. Yeah. But it wasn't until I sat there trying to write in a notebook and I thought, I, yeah, OK, that's, that's just, just something to pack, pack away in the back of your head and think about and um, just texture. It's just anything that is going to lend itself to authenticity I guess yeah and that would be the advantage of like as amazing as Google Maps is there's nothing quite like actually going to the place absorbing it feeling it and yeah it. just the rhythms of the day like yeah, for example we were down there and we got up in the morning and we went and had breakfast and it was sunny and a little bit windy then later in the day the wind really picked up the wind turned the wave the ocean or the bay took on a particular colour and then the way the clouds came a particular way and by the end of the day the whole mm. and just the rhythms of the day that are different in some places even those little things kind of give you something to think about in terms of um yeah i remember what movie was it it was, might have been a book no it was a book by chrissy neem where she doesn't you don't think she's talking a lot about how cold and wet it is but then when you get to the end of the book you just go didn't stop bloody raining for that whole book. And <laughs> it's cold and wet the whole time. Right. Yeah. A bit like that movie Seven, right? Yeah. Like every time they go outside or they're inside, it's raining somewhere. And yeah. it's just sort of this thing that... So, yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you so much, James. Uh, can't wait to read it. Thank you. I can't wait to write it. <laughs>